Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 9. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went up to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name Shem Adonai, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadav, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Achio, the sons of Abinadav, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Achio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nahon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Peretz Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, Ech yavo elai Aaron Adonai. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? La palabra de Dios, gracias al Señor. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for Brian as he comes to speak with us this morning. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for Brian. Thank you for the word you've given to him, Lord, the preparation he's put into this sermon. And just pray that he would sense your presence with him as he's speaking. And I pray for each of us that we would be open to the way you would be speaking to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Rebecca. Good morning, everyone. Well, I, I've just determined that whenever I go preach anywhere, I will take both the choir with me and the brother who knows how to speak Hebrew. <laughs> uh, we will be very busy together. And uh, now I know how to say some of these words. Uh, thank you so much. What a, what a beautiful service. So... I just want to give you a bit of a heads up as to what gospel preaching often feels like for the audience and the preacher. Gospel preaching usually gets really dark and really discouraging just before the light dawns. So Uzzah dies before David dances. And 
God's grace is really seen as being wondrous and amazing, but only after we recognize just how dark things can get as a result of our sin. So if you're tempted to leave halfway through thinking, boy, this preacher's really negative today, just hang in there because, yeah, Lent can be difficult, but Easter is coming. Now, poor David has had to wait a very long time for his anointing to actually turn into a kingship. Uh, Remember when Samuel found David's family, checked out all the brothers, none of them were the right guy. Finally, he poured his horn of oil onto David's head and the Holy Spirit came upon David. And the Spirit never departed from David from that day forward. However, it was a very, very difficult time of waiting for him. And what was he doing while in God's waiting room? He was dodging spears and hiding in caves and singing some very, very sad songs. But his adversary, uh, Saul, is now dead, and David is finally enthroned by his own people in the city of Hebron. So the whole season of David's life leading up to the text that was just written for us um, could be summarized by the word arrival. David has finally arrived. He's no longer living on the margins. He's living in the center. He's captured the city of Jerusalem, right? He is called it the city of David. The foreign king of Tyre, of all people, have built David a palace in the city of David. And he has also he's subdued his enemies. So for the moment, uh, peace and prosperity is, is really the word of the day. It's how everybody's feeling. And David feels like he's won the People's Choice Awards. He really is in his leadership sweet spot. It's where all of us as leaders would like to be eventually, where we sort of have the feeling that everything is going really well. However, things don't always go well for leaders or for the people who are following them, and thus we have 2 Samuel chapter 6. David was king, but he knew that something or maybe someone was missing. The Ark of the Covenant was missing from Israel's life of worship. Now, you know the peculiar Ark of the Covenant that Harrison Ford made famous in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, People of all generations have been really enamored with this unique piece of furniture because of the mystery surrounding the Ark narratives or the Ark stories that are right here for us in 2 Samuel. For those of you that haven't had a chance to see the picture on the screen, you might be listening, and maybe you're new to the Bible. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant was this rectangular gold-plated box that God told Moses to build. It had two angelic cherubim on the lid. They were facing each other, and the wings were touching. The Ark contained a jar of manna, uh, Aaron's a high priestly rod that one day started to miraculously bud flowers of all things, and it also contained the stone tablet that God had given Moses on the mountain. So think about these three iconic uh, things inside the ark. Uh, The manna symbolizing the bread of heaven, the, the rod of Aaron symbolizing the great high priest, and the stone tablet symbolizing 
the Word of God among us. Now, if some of you are already having some Christological thoughts, that's really, really good. In fact, our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters see the Ark of the Covenant being a sign of the Virgin Mary, who when she walked into Elizabeth's house, she contained in her womb the bread of heaven, the great high priest himself, and the living word among us. And uh, John the Baptist, who was also in vitro at that time, in his mother, Elizabeth, when he heard Mary's voice, he danced. He jumped in Mary's womb. Now, us Protestants think that's very far-fetched and fanciful, but I quite like it, I have to say. So what was so special about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was the place within the Holy of Holies where God would meet with Moses face to face and with the high priest. He said, I will meet you, said the Lord, between the wings of the cherubim. Now, God's presence, obviously, was not contained by the Ark of the Covenant or limited by it, not in any way, shape, or form at all. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. But the Ark did, in a very unique way, represent and manifest God on location. Or in a very crude way, we would say, X marks the spot. So if you wanted to get as close as you possibly could to the manifest presence of God, you wanted to get as close to the Ark of the Covenant as you possibly could. In a way, it represented this thought of Emmanuel, God is with us. And so considering this, what Hebrew king, worth his salt, wouldn't want the manifest presence of God within the center of the royal city. So, this is the story of David fetching the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, it was the first line item on his to-do list as king. Sort of like when a politician is uh, elected mayor, she says on TV the first day, for my first 100 days of being the mayor, I will do these things. And we all go, Good. Glad that you are you're planning your future. And this is exactly what David did. So, we, we, we should really go, well, simple, right? This is pretty straightforward. Find out where the Ark of the Covenant is, get a good group of strong men together, and go get it, and bring it back into the city where it belongs. Sort of like the Vancouver Canucks, wanting to bring the Stanley Cup back into, Van, into Vancouver. <laughs> but as it turns out... It's just as hard to get the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem as it is to get the Stanley Cup into Vancouver. But I don't want your minds to go to hockey right now, but to stay here. Now, you might be thinking for a moment, okay, there is nothing in our uh, you know, 21st century Protestant world that is anything like the Ark of the Covenant. So really, this is going to be completely irrelevant to me. No. I want you to imagine that First Baptist Church has been worshiping for decades, only you have been robbed of the manifest presence of God in your worship because baptism and the Lord's Supper have been marginalized. 
Imagine those kids going to Costa Rica. Some of them may be even coming to faith this next week. I don't know where they're all at. And coming home and saying, I found Jesus. I met him in Costa Rica. And we would all go great, but it wasn't sealed in baptism. Imagine how impoverished we would feel without the thin place created by the sacrament of baptism. Imagine if we as a church had to go through decades commemorating the death of Christ on our behalf, but never doing it at the table with real bread and real wine. Imagine us never, ever encountering the thin place of the Eucharist. We would feel impoverished. Now, imagine if one Sunday, after not seeing a baptism for decades and not ever having the Lord's Supper, all we would get is sermons. <laughs> And songs, even really good ones. But imagine if we walked in and all the holy furniture was back, the baptistry was back, and the kids were lined up to go to their watery grave, and people came to the table with hands and hearts extended saying, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Imagine the excitement. I bet even a few Baptists would dare Oh, no, maybe not. Our story tells us that retrieving the Ark of the Covenant was not as straightforward as David thought. David reigned, or God reigned on David's parade, executing the death penalty on one of his people in the middle of a worship festival that would have felt like Woodstock. 30,000 musicians with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of it all. And they're all worshiping their hearts out, singing and playing, using all the instruments of the day. And everybody seemed to be having a very good time, except for God. God, though he was the center of attention, did not enjoy it at all. Apparently, the sheer size of the worshiping community and the extreme zeal of the worshipers themselves did not pass God's litmus test for true worship. And God was upset. Uzzah, or Uzzah, one of the guys responsible for transporting the ark, what did he do? He gently nudged the ark of the covenant back onto the ox cart because the oxen had stumbled and the ark was in danger of falling off and maybe getting soiled or worse, getting broken. So all he really did is push the ark back onto the center of the ox cart and bam, he's dead. And the whole thing is over. The whole worship festival is over and they send the ark to the closest house, to the house of Obed-Edom and David goes back to Jerusalem with his tail between his legs and he is upset with God. So what's going on here? What's happening with this whole story? The act of God appears extreme, and it stirs protest. In fact, we can be honest about this. There's a lot of our evangelical brethren today who are looking at stories like this and other stories like it, and they're saying, you know, we think that the God of the Old Testament is really a harsh God and unliving and vindictive and violent. Whereas the God of the New Testament is nice 
He's easier to be around. He's Jesus. So we prefer Jesus than the God of the Old Testament. Therefore, we should uncouple the Old Testament from the New Testament. I don't have time to get into this, but all I want to say about that is, is that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. So whenever we see something in the Old Testament that makes us feel awkward or uncomfortable or maybe even makes us mad or we don't understand, we take it up with Jesus because Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit all acted together through the entire Old Testament, right? Right, good. So, uh, what is going on here? We, we can't help but ask, if Uzzah got taken out for that, what chance do I have? Because I've done way worse than touching the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, this is like last week, right? Who can stand, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to an idol and does not swear by what is false. And though we didn't ask for a show of hands, I think everybody here said, none of us qualified. And remember I said last week, if I could communicate to you how that text made me feel, there would be a whole bunch of emoticons that would be very appropriate. And we have those emoticons that are appropriate here today. Some important history, however, is required. First, the history of the ark itself sheds light on why God killed Uzzah. Because the ark manifested the actual presence of God, great care was to be taken in how the ark was handled. So the issue at stake was God's holiness and Israel's sinfulness. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and would commune with God directly on behalf of the people. However, this merciful meeting between God and the priest came at a price. A perfect lamb had to be taken from the flock and sacrificed, and the blood placed in a basin and then the priest would take the basin of blood with hyssop and would go to the Ark of the Covenant, in particularly to the mercy seat, which was the part on the top, and he would cover it with blood so that it was no longer this beautiful gold uh, piece of furniture. It was dripping with blood everywhere. There was blood on the Ark, and there was blood all over the priest. Now, this bloody act of sacrifice really should be shocking for the world. If they heard any part of this story, they would say, well, that's why I'm not a Christian. But this sacrifice shouldn't be shocking for us because we've already read the story from Genesis up to 2 Samuel. We already know that reconciliation and communion with God has always required the shedding of the blood of an innocent substitute. And so whether it was the animal that God killed in order to take the skin and clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve, or it was the ram caught in the thicket that was the substitute sacrifice instead of Isaac, or it was the hundred of Passover lambs that were sacrificed and the blood applied to the doorposts, so when the death angel passed over them, the firstborn was not killed. There's, there's so many stories like it. 
We are not surprised to hear this. This is the story of the Bible. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But not only was a blood sacrifice required, but the ark itself had to be transported by divinely appointed people who carried the ark on very long poles. So long that if you looked at the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the poles would come out both ends of the Holy of Holies. Why? To illustrate the vast distance between God and his people, a distance that only God could bridge by his own initiative, and I might add, a distance that God absolutely delights in bridging. In fact, Would it be safe to say that there are a few things that God enjoys more than bridging the gap between him and sinful people? Evidenced in the incarnation itself? Okay, long poles, shedding of blood, sacrificial atonement. None of this happened in our story. Where did the Israelites get the idea of transporting the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart. Here's one artist's rendition of it. I'm sure some of you know the answer. Where did they get the idea from? Nobody wants to be wrong. From the Philistines. The Philistines transported their deities on ox carts, and so did the Canaanites, and eventually so did the Babylonians. And... When the Philistines won a war against Israel, do you remember the story where they stole the Ark of the Covenant? And they thought, lucky us, we now have the Hebrew God and we have our God. We are going to win all the wars from now on. But wherever the Ark of the Covenant went, people got sick and died. So they stuck the Ark in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine God, but in the morning Dagon was dismembered and beheaded. And they said to themselves, we cannot control this Hebrew God. That was the smartest thing the Philistines ever said. We will send him back to Israel. So they put the ox cart, they put the the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart and with some choice golden gifts, sent it back to Israel and said, uh, we are too much or, or your God is too much for us. They did carry their deities on ox carts, and Uzzah knew this, and the entire nation of Israel knew this. They knew, they knew God's rules. Number four, uh, 15 couldn't be clearer. God says they must not touch the holy things or they will die. So not only did Uzzah know that he was violating God's commands, but there was a history of people dying associated with a cavalier treatment of the Ark of the Covenant. On one occasion, 70 Israelites died, not just one, because as the ark came into the presence of Israel, they went rushing towards it and not only touched it, but they opened up the lid to look inside. And do you remember what happened? If you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know exactly what happened. It's the highlight of the film. There's a complete meltdown. And this is what happened to seven Israelites So we tend to think that Uzzah's sin was a minor infraction of touching the ark, but his sin was one of brazen presumption. 
Secondly, the theology of the gospel itself sheds light on why Uzzah died. And there's a verse that almost all of us have memorized when we were young, and I will say the first five words, and then you can in a loud voice say the last word. Are you ready? The wages of sin is And this is how the biblical story started. God said to Adam and Eve, you have complete freedom in this garden. This is going to be a great life. However, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I have to approach this with pastoral sensitivity. Some of us who are getting old like me are sinners that God has allowed to live almost three score and ten. And I will eventually die because the wages of sin is death, and I am a sinner, and sin, death is part of the story. But there are other people who, in the sovereignty of God, are taken out by God quickly, like Uzzah, or like the sons of Judah two weeks ago or like Lot's wife, or Jezebel, or Jeroboam, or Herod in the New Testament, eaten by worms, or Ananias and Sapphira, instantly executed simply because they lied to the apostles. But here's the deal. The deal is is that God, and only God, in his unsearchable sovereignty, has the right and the prerogative to judge anyone at any time for their sin. Now, if this was the end of the story, we would all be in utter despair. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If sin punishable by death is the last word, we should all become Buddhists or Hindus or New Agers or atheists because this thing doesn't work. If sin punishable by death is the last word. There is no happy ending, and sin triumphs, and death wins. So look for the redemptive signals. They're going to come really fast here now. Thankfully, this is not how this story ends. Think about this. David's first attempt at living in God's holy presence with the Ark of the Covenant failed miserably because it was a man-centered approach, and Uzzah died because of it taking their cue from the pagan religions around them, innovation trumped revelation. So think about it. Using technology is not a sin. We are using it today. This this thing is being broadcasted today. We all have cell phones in our pocket. There's nothing wrong with technology. But using technology to control God or manage God or play God is deadly. David, Uzzah, and the entire nation approached God on this particular day on their own terms. By transporting the ark on an ox cart, they were recreating God into the image of the prevailing culture around them. It was really tantamount to creating a golden calf. It was the same thing. But when they made a golden calf, thousands of people died that day, not just one. Some think that the fact that only one person died and not the entire worship team of 3,000 was an incredible act of mercy. 
So here's a very important question. You look at a story like this and you sort of ask, boy, God, that was, that was really hard. It was really, really hard. Do you really want to be with your people? Does God really delight in living in the midst of us? Does God actually want to get as close to us as he possibly can? Yes, yes, yes. And the incarnation of Jesus is proof of that. The first thing that Jesus does as an adult is he gets as close to people who in that society were considered off limits as he possibly could. This is the heart of our God. But the problem of our perennial sinfulness demands that God alone initiate the relationship, define the parameters of the relationship, and secure the relationship through an atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice that not only deals justly with sin and removes its curse, but a sacrifice that demonstrates the self-emptying love of God in Christ, or to use C.S. Lewis imagery, Aslan must be killed on the cold stone table and raised to life, or the white witch of perpetual winter will triumph. So here's the question. Where is the atoning sacrifice in this story? Where's the stone table? Where's the sprinkling of blood that cleanses, forgives, heals, and restores? Where's the cross prefigured and proclaimed? Where's the gospel in this dark story? Okay, here it is. <laughs> Look at verse 12. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So the ark was in Obed-Edom's backyard. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So this is now the second kick at the can. The first one failed. Look at verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, who was David's wife, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. The rest of the chapter says that he then threw a party for all the people. They celebrated, and everybody went to their home. So do you see a shift in the second worship event? The ox cart is history. And they are now carrying the Ark of the Covenant on very long poles. And the key to the whole text is in verse 13. And those who were carrying the Ark of God after they had taken six steps, they sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Some translators uh, suggest that every six steps, 
they sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, which would mean that from the house of Obed-Edom all the way to Jerusalem, there was a trail of carcasses and spilled blood. Whichever way you translate it, it's a picture of God's presence coming into the city, and it's a picture of sacrifice and atonement. It's the Via Dolorosa. It's the way of suffering love. It points to Christ. So why did David dance? Well, he danced in light of the good news of the gospel. God's holy presence was coming into the midst of his people through an atoning sacrifice. And what David couldn't possibly understand was that a time was coming when God himself would arrive as one of us a man capable of dying in our place. What David couldn't possibly see at this time in his life was that it would be his own descendant, a son of David, who would not only tabernacle among us like the Ark of the Covenant did, but he would also be the sacrificial lamb. He would be everything in the story. The whole story is pointing to Christ, and this is why David danced. God had made a way for himself and his people to live together. And that way, of course, now is Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning. And as David would have opened up one of the city gates to let God in, every one of us is invited to make the same decision, to open up a gate in our hearts and to let the risen Christ in, the one who is our atoning sacrifice, who has died in our place. And so if you have not yet placed your trust in Christ, I invite you to do it today, to open up your heart to Jesus and to trust what he has done for you. And if you have placed your trust in Jesus, and most of us here have, whatever it is you may be going through today, whatever kind of Lenten journey you're experiencing, in your own way, it may be time to put on your dancing shoes. For weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It's Friday. It's Lent. It's dark. We know the end of the story. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.